Great. Ah, hello, hello, hi. So it's the second full day of your retreat. And wondering, a show of hands, how many people have experienced sleepiness, sloth and torpor today? A show of hands. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Me too, actually. Yeah. How many people have experienced restlessness at any time? Yeah. Any um, any desires have come up today? <laughs> Anyone? Any desires? No? <laughs> Oh, we just turned on the recording. We're good. <laughs> um, any, um, I don't know, any, any, um, oh, maybe a little bit of aversion? Anyone with aversion? Any time? Yeah. I see two hands. Yes. Yeah. Any doubt? Anyone? Any doubt? What am I doing here? I should be on the beach right now? I don't know. Yeah. Did I name all the hindrances? I think I did. So, <laughs> yeah. So we have a technical term as Dharma teachers. We have a technical term for the second day of the retreat. We call it the swamps. <laughs> so, as you notice, the hands that the most hands that went up were for the swamps, for for sloth and torpor, or for sleepiness. Yeah. It's like this. It's like this being human, being in a human body, being on retreat the second day. This is what it's like. You're not defective. You don't have a bad mind. You don't get the you know, bad one off the shelf. You're normal. This is normal. It's okay. It's okay, dear heart. It's okay. So knowing this, we often, not always, but we often plan a talk for the second night, the second day, the second day of the retreat that speaks about the five hindrances. And this is that talk. (laughs) So if you've been visited by any of the hindrances, here we go. We're going to embrace them, talk about them, befriend them, learn from them. And if you haven't had any yet, great, just wait. (laughs) You know, they're a part of being human. So, so maybe I'll start formally with uh, with a quote from the suttas before I talk about the hindrances and why I don't like the translation of the word hindrances and all that. I'll keep you on the edge of your seats. First, the sutta quote. So this is from Anguttara Nikaya, 445. Um, And here it goes. The end of the world can never be reached by walking. However, without having reached... The world's end, there is no release from suffering. Hmm, what is the Buddha pointing to? Let me read it again before I continue. The end of the world can never be reached by walking. However, without having reached the the world's end, there is no release from suffering. So he's talking about the world's end, about the world. What does he mean about the world? Right? This is what he means. I declare that it is in this fathom-long body, with its perceptions and thoughts, that there is the world. Isn't that awesome? The way he's completely turning it around. I declare that it is in this fathom-long body with its perceptions and thoughts that there is the world, the origin of the world, the cessation of the world, and the path leading to the cessation of the world. So basically, it's not outside. It's here. 
It's in our perceptions, our thoughts, in this fathom-long body. The origin of the world and the release, the freedom, the cessation, another word for nibbana, for freedom. It's right here, right here, tying it also to the mindfulness of the body, which we have been talking about, bodyfulness, these past couple of days. And as we talk about the quote-unquote hindrances, you will see that, true, it's about the training of our hearts and minds. I'll also share one quote from the scholar Andrew Olensky about this um, this sutta um, paragraph that I shared as a way to frame as a fr- as a way to frame this talk. So Andrew writes, the perspective articulated by the Buddha was something very different from either materialism, or spiritualism, and might be called an early form of phenomenology. I'll talk a little more about phenomenology. Well, actually, I'll just say now. Phenomenology, for those who may not be familiar with that term, it's hard to say, especially if your first language is not English, phenomenology. I got it right. Wow. Um, sometimes I stumble over that word. Um, Phenomenology, it's, it's basically this, this philosophical stance that, that how we experience the word, our first-person perspective, it's how we experience phenomena, how we experience the outside world through our apparatus of perception, which, for example, is very different from how a bee experiences the world or how a dog experiences the world. We don't have a dog's ability to hear or or smell you know through our we experience the world through our apparatus through our perception it's the phenomenological perspective of the world is through it's through our perception so that's in a nutshell phenomenology is the first person experience of the world so so here he's saying that the perspective articulated by the Buddha was something very different from either materialism or spiritualism, that ev- everything is either material, fixed out there, or it's just spiritual, spiritual forms. It's, can be, it might be called an early form of phenomenology. It's how you experience the world through your body, through your six sense doors. Right? That the quote that I just shared. This fathom long body with its perceptions and thoughts that there is the world. So Andrew continues. What we take to be the world is a virtual construction of the human mind and body woven together of moments of consciousness arising and falling away in an ongoing stream. It is a world of appearances, of phenomena, constructed and imbued with meaning locally. It is constructed and imbued with meaning locally by each individual, according to patterns learned from and passed on to others. It's a very powerful statement about how we fabricate, how we concoct our world. So keep this frame in mind as we talk about, as we explore the five hindrances. Okay. So now for our promised feature of this evening. So the word for Hindrances that, that that the word that the um, that is a tra- often translated to hindrances is the Pali word nivarana nivarana, and it's better translated as covering or veil, covering or veil. And notice 
as I share this, if you feel a little bit a different relationship between these five things, if they're hindrances, hindrances, whereas they're they're veils, they're coverings. Oh yeah, they're covering. And the first time I I uh, heard this translation, it made so much sense to me. The image that came up for me was from my own practice that yeah, my path, my path of awakening, it's. It's through these five nivaranas. It's through them. It's like this is the path they're teaching me. They're lessons. They're lesson plans. And there's a and they're also like a little veil. Like okay, be curious, be interested. Open the veil. Open the covering. The path is right through. The path to awakening is right through. It's not like oh obstacle, oh hindrance, ah oh, terrible. I have a hindrance. It's like oh yeah. It's, it's a veil. The path is right here. It's, reve- it's revealing the path. Actually, that's even a, a lovelier way to think about them. The, pa- the, the practice is not elsewhere. These nivaranas are the path. What they teach us, how we deal with them, how we work with them, we learn so much about the nature of our mind, about how to let go, about how to be kind, how to be generous. This is the lesson plan. It's not elsewhere. Freedom is not elsewhere. This is it. So I invite us to shift our relationship to to Nivarana. Again, I will here and there use the word hindrances because that's where you see everywhere. So I don't want to depart too much from the, tr- the often translation, but I want to invite you to shift your relationship. So again, the idea is not to try to crush them, to crush hindrances. That's not the idea in any of our practice anyway, but to really know and learn from them. My teacher, friend, and mentor, Gail Fronstel, puts it this way. That, that these nivarana describe a very important list of mental states that have a big impact on not just our meditation practice, but on our daily lives. It's not just for our cushion, but for daily lives. And that it's important not to see them as personal failings. And that all human beings have them. And that our goal is not to dismiss them, but to study them and understand them really well. To become a good student of the Nivarana. In order to become a good student of them, we need to be very patient with them not be dismissive of them. And, and um, Gail has the saying, when they arise, you must stop for them, as if you had a bumper sticker, I stop for the hindrances. <laughs> so to become patient with them, to become curious, to become a student of them, to really study them, what is happening, what is happening right now. And that clarity of recognizing them, a mind that recognizes the nivarana, sees clearly what is happening, actually has freedom, has, there's a sense of joy, there's a sense of delight of knowing what is happening, even if what's happening is challenging. But there is a delight, there is a joy in mindfulness, in this awareness of what is happening. And, and you can tune into that, that clear seeing of what is. I'll talk much more about this. So, so again, setting this framework that this way of working with Nivarana is an ingenious way of turning um, these so-called obstacles to meditation objects. They're not so much obstacles as he and I was beautifully speaking about yesterday. 
not so much an obstacle, not so much, oh, this is a problem. Oh, yeah, what can I learn? What can it teach me about the nature of my own mind and the nature of being human? So, another couple of words before we talk about each one of them. The um, the way in general, and, and there are some very specific specific ways that we work with them. But in a general way, we want to work with them as the wisdom of the middle way invites us. The middle way, the middle way between indulgence and suppression. The middle way between indulgence and suppression. I hope you remember this. The middle way between indulgence and suppression with clarity, wisdom, and kindness. And, and also to say in another way, this, this act of turning towards them, really turning towards them with, with clarity of recognition, um, this, this powerful act of simple recognition of what is happening in many suttas actually is, um, is the way that these nivaranas are, are uh, worked with. So, um, so Mara, actually maybe I'll save this for later. I'll talk about Mara in a little bit. Okay, so let's talk about the first one. Let's get started. So I'll say more about the first one, which is desire for, for sensual pleasure, sensual desire, kamachanda. And, and progressively, I'll say less about the future ones because, the, because many of the things I say about the first one, you can apply to the later ones. It's like a mathematical concept, you know, proof, like you, when you got it once, you're kind of like, oh yeah, I get it. This is how I'm going to work with them. So, so sensual desire, actually just checking, is the volume still okay for those who had trouble? Oh, great. Okay, good. So, sensual desire, desire for sensual pleasure, kama chanda in Pali, kama chanda. It's basically the impulse to move towards or grasp after what we want. It's it's an unrealistic relationship towards the pleasant. And in other ways, we can think of it as a definition of the desire, the desire for pleasant sights, tastes, smells, sounds, bodily sensations, and mind states. Those are the six um, set, six doors, the six sense doors. And if you're new to the practice of Buddhism, you may think, wait a minute, I knew there were five sense doors. What's the sixth one? The mind door is the sixth, is the sixth door because everything that you can um, experience in the six sense doors, you can... Um, Replay in the mind door, you know, music, sights, etc. So, kamachanda, sensual desire, desire for these pleasant, uh, pleasant states, pleasant uh, experiences, experience uh, pleasant phenomena, and in daily life, and also on retreat, it can show up as an only if mentality. Only if I had the right job, only if I had the right relationship, house, clothes, body, then I would be happy. On the retreat, it can show up in the same ways, in the same stories, or it can show up, oh, if I had the right meditation experiences, that person sitting next to me, wow, they seem really like they're deep in concentration. If I had that, I would have a good retreat. I would, this would be worthwhile. What am I doing here? I'm wasting my time. Actually, that's kind of doubt. We'll get to that. But but <laughs> I'm getting ahead of myself. But here, maybe I'll show up. Oh, yeah, you want to string a bunch of good experiences. Yes, if I have just the right, excellent breakfast, the breakfast I want, and if I have a good sit, and I have a good walk, and I have a pleasant this, and I have a pleasant that, and I have the pleasant the next one, and the practice session goes well, and it's like pleasant, 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 pleasant. We try to string along lots of pleasant experiences. Not to say there's anything wrong with pleasant experiences. 
please don't get the wrong message. Buddhism is not about, okay, you're not supposed to enjoy your experience. No, it's not about that at all. It's just that sometimes the mind confuses stringing along wanting the pleasant experience to make everything just perfect. Oh, dear mind, oh, dear mind. You just you really try to do that, right? It confuses the stringing along of, of pleasant experiences for fulfillment, for contentment. And we know that that's not the case. We know that's not the case. And that pleasant experiences are just pleasant. They're not, they, they're not inherently satisfactory. We'll talk more about unsatisfactoriness as one of the marks of existence later on the retreat. But we know that already. We know that already. We know that. Otherwise you wouldn't be here. And studying, and studying kamachanda, studying the sensual um, desire, desire for sensual pleasure, it's so interesting. You can notice that the strength of the desire, it's, it's not um, the strength of a desire for, say, a, a second cookie after lunch could be as strong as your, I don't know, dream job, Right? So it's not so much about the object. The strength of the wanting can be so strong. Have you noticed that? It can be so strong sometimes. And that's interesting. Wow, check this out, this being human, how this works. I can get as excited or wanting or, or suffering about a, a second cookie. They were good, but you, know, you can really suffer a lot. So interesting to notice that. And... What's really interesting here is that it's not about the object of desire. It's not about the objects. It's about our state of mind. It's about a wanting mind that wants, that wants, that wants, that wants. And it's tasted the pleasant and it wants more and more and more. And it thinks that's happiness. It wants more and more. One example of the way that this this desiring mind, which also, you can think of, by the way, as desiring energy in the mind, um, which is kind of similar in a way with the cranky mind or aversive mind, which I'll talk about in a moment, you know, the way that if you get up from the wrong side of the bed and there's aversive mind, it's aversive towards everything, is equal opportunity, aversiveness, right? So it's not about the object in the environment, it's about the, the aversive mind. Here, this is, this is the wanting mind. Want, 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 And it's so, so it's so interesting to see that because often what we do, this is so interesting, we often get focused on the object of our attention. I want this. It's beautiful. It's wow. Can I have it, IMS? This is such a nice striker. I, instead of, oh, wow, look at my wanting mind, right? We pay attention to the object, not our relationship to the object, not the way you're holding the object, right? I can be holding the object like this. Ah, this is a great striker. It's very, very nice, very helpful, but I can hold it very lightly. It's very pleasant. It comes, it goes. It's okay. My hand is open. But oof, if I'm like this, if I'm clutching with desire, I want this. I want it. Ooh. Notice. Notice the dukkha. Notice the pain of the wanting. So bring attention to the relationship to the object without getting lost in the fantasy. And it can, again, show up in so many ways. It can show up, for example, on the cushion. It can show up the mind, for example, getting 
say bored with the experience. We'll talk more about boredom, sloth, and torpor in a moment. But let's say it gets bored and then oh, and then you have a multiple hindrances attack. I haven't talked about that yet. You'll have multiple multiples of them at the same time. There's a little bit of boredom. Oh, yeah. And then, oh, yeah, no, gosh. Oh, my friends are in Hawaii right now. I could be there on a hammock. Wouldn't that be nice? Well, maybe next year at this time, like gone, pleasant, 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 right? Pleasant, pleasant. So recognizing, oh, sweetheart, this is a wanting mind. This is, this is a wanting mind. This is a mind that wants, is just wah, wah, is wanting, wanting. And have kindness, have kindness towards that mind. Instead of slapping it, slapping never works. The mind gets very upset and unhappy and doesn't want to meditate anymore. <laughs> sweetheart, that's not where happiness is it's okay it's all right let's come back let's come back there's actually plenty of interesting interest and and meditative joys right here right now there is a joy and delight to being aware to awareness itself have you experienced that already on the retreat have you noticed when the moment when there's awareness there's a delight Yes, even if what you're being aware of is not pleasant, still there is a joy, there's a delight of being present, fully present here with what is. Another thing I want to share about this this um, wanting mind, this wanting mind, so it's really the energy of the mind. And you can think of it as these five nivaranas, as energies moving through, these energies of <clears throat> that that visit us. So... One way that this also sometimes shows up on retreat <clears throat> is, again, we have another technical term for this, is what's called Vipassana romance. And you might have heard this before. And what this is, is without having met someone else, all of a sudden, oh yes, they're the lost, long-lost long soulmate you've been dreaming of. And in your mind, the mind goes through the courtship and plans the wedding and you already have children and you have a life together and sometimes you even go through divorce. <laughs> like the whole thing is played out. And what's really interesting is to notice it's not so much about that other person. At, it's not about them. It's really about the mind that is desiring it wants. Maybe the mind feels lonely. Maybe the mind wants connection and is, is now creating the story. So turn and see towards that with the energy in the mind instead of be lost in the object of desire. And this happens on retreat, and please keep your, your energy contained. Don't act on anything. See what's happening in your mind. It's not about the object. In fact, um, I've had people report that when they've developed Vipassana romance, they they know that this other person is just not not appropriate for them, just not a person there. But somehow the mind is is desiring, is the desiring mind. So turn your awareness not to the object, but to this desiring mind. Oh, sweetheart. Okay, maybe you're feeling lonely. Okay, metta. May you have. May you be kind. May you know your own goodness. May you fill your own cup with love and acceptance instead of seeking it externally. So there are ways to, when you become aware of how the mind is playing these shenanigans, to really work with it skillfully instead of being lost in the story. So it is, it is said that the, the, simile, um, the, the simile that the Buddha uses for <clears throat> Kamachanda for sensual desire is is if you had a bowl of water, if this bowl of water and and you're using the bowl of water to see your reflection, uh, there was dye, there was colored dye. So we can think of it as rose-colored glasses. I guess they did not have glasses 2,700 years ago, but you can think of it as rose-colored glasses where everything's like, oh, wow, yes. So Kamachanda, this, Nivarana is like wearing rose-colored glasses. The object becomes much more attractive than it actually is. So again, 
take the glasses off. Look at at what the glasses look. Examine your mind. Examine the dye in your mind. And also keep in mind that the more a mental habit is gratified, the stronger it gets. So the in in neuroscience terms, the neurons that fire together, wire together. And in the words of the Buddha from the Dhammapada, parallel is whatever you frequently reflect and ponder upon becomes the inclination of your mind. So whatever you frequently ponder and reflect upon, that becomes the inclination of your mind and heart. So if we keep lusting after things and not examining and keep getting satisfied, satisfying them, we're feeding, we keep feeding, we keep feeding. And again, this is not about deprivation at all. It's not about enjoying your cookie at all. Please enjoy your cookies. But it's about having wisdom, really turning and learning. With, like, what is happening in this mind? You may still have the cookie, but, but know what is happening. What is the desire? Is it satisfying? Is it not? Etc. Become aware. Become wise. And, and this kind of mind, this rose-colored glasses, of course, it distorts our perception. Distorts our perception. So see how your perception gets distorted. And, and of course, this distortion of our perception is true for all the other four as well. Our perception becomes distorted through the ways that they show up. So, I've already mentioned some ways to work with this. In fact, I've infused it through this, but maybe I'll highlight, highlight it again. So, clearly recognize what's happening. Clearly recognize, yeah, there is desire happening. There's wanting in the mind, wanting to be elsewhere, wanting to do something else, wanting, 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 whatever the wanting is, wanting a different experience. Not wanting this, wanting something else, wanting that. Oh yeah, this is what's happening. This is the kamachanda, wanting the pleasant experience, something different. Clearly see it, and clearly see it with kindness. Not be ready to beat yourself up. It's like, oh, sweetheart, it's to be human. It's to want. Okay, I see it. I see it clearly. And every time you see it clearly, you're weakening the tendency. That's all. It's okay. Just see it clearly. I've mentioned it already, but I'll underline it again. Instead of being caught in the object of desire, turn your mind to the relationship, to the desire itself. Study it. Study the pain in the wanting, the dukkha in the wanting. It's not, it's not pleasant. It's not pleasant. You can also see the arising and the passing away. Actually, that's very interesting too, with some, with some desires. For example, keep thinking of the cookies because we have such great cookies today. Um, say you have a desire for, the, for a second cookie or a third cookie. So observe it. Observe the desire. This is actually very interesting practice. I've done it. It's, it's fun. You get to really notice, oh, I see the desire. I see, oh, yes, really, wow, it's tight. Ooh, you get to see it, you get to see it, you get to feel it, you get to feel it, and then you get to see it at some point. It gets really strong, like, oh, my God, I want to go and get the second cookie. Ah! It's like, oh, no, I, can, I can stay with this. I can, I can observe this. Yeah, we're just, we're going to stay with this. Like, and then at some point, the mind, whew, let's go. On to another thing. On to, it's wild. <laughs> When you see that, you can also see that with a desire to scratch an itch. It's so fun. Try that. You will get an itch. 
I hope. No, I'm <laughs> so that you can study it. And at some point you're like, I'm going to die if I don't scratch this. Itch. Okay, sweetheart, it's not good. You're not going to die, darling. Just, just, just. And then you watch it, you watch it, and it comes and it goes. Wow. You've expanded, you've stretched your limit. Gently, kindly, playfully. Don't do that with knee pain, but with scratch, with the itch is fine. So notice in these small ways and your capacity stretches. This is, this is really fun practice. This is fun. You're in the laboratory for these 10 days. This is awesome. Where else do you get the chance to, to do these explorations, these scientific experiments with your own mind? Pretty awesome. Okay. And then maybe I'll mention one more thing in this and then move on. So there's also um, a place for uh, what's called cognitive appraisal. So there is a list of various things to do. You know, you try these, this and that and that and that and that. And, and cognitive appraisal, for example, the first practice that the monks are taught when they shave their heads and, and, are, and take on robes, is the 32 parts of the body. So the practice of the 32 parts of the body, it's basically seeing the body as its parts. And when you do that for yourself or for someone else, the sense of overlay of attractiveness, the rosiness, it goes away. Like, oh yeah, they're made up of hair, head hair, body hair, I don't know, the, the, the 30, or you can do the simplified version, which is flesh, bones, it's skin, flesh, bones, skin, flesh, bones, and that's really bringing a different, wearing a different kind of glasses if there's a lot of lust in the mind, if there's a lot of wanting. So, so these are some practices that you can bring in. <clears throat> All right, I'm going to move on. So much to say. This is so fun. Um, so moving on to the second, <clears throat> Nevarana. Ill will, aversion, hatred, anger. These are the nuances, the, the, the different colors in, um, where it can show up. In Pali, Bayapada. So it's a pair. This is a pair. Clearly, it's a pair with the sensual desire. Sensual desire wants, wants, wants. Pleasant, I want more. This is like, it's unpleasant. I don't want it. Make it go away. Go away. Go away. So it's pushing away. It's the impulse to push away, and it's the unrealistic relationship to the unpleasant. And and this aversion, the, the aversion version of it, is is likened to this water being coming to a boil. It's a um, um, the other one had dye in it, remember? And now this is water that's boiling. So bo- water is boiling with aversion, with ill will, like boiling, boiling, boiling. And I like th- these metaphors actually because they make it a little impersonal. Yeah, this is what it's like. This is what it's like in the mind, in everybody's mind. It's not just me. Oh yeah, boiling water is happening right now. Water is boiling right now. So the des- the, the desire can fool us in the first case, right? We can be lost in in the the fantasy land, but the unpleasantness of the ill will usually wakes us up that we don't want this, we want it to go away. Usually it's like, I, I don't want this. But actually, sometimes, with anger, we might be enjoying it, right? It's like, oh, I'm right, they're, they're wrong, right? It's like, it's, it, anger sometimes can feel energetic and delicious. And yet, anger has... A honey tip and a poisonous root. When I read that, when I heard that, like, yes, that's it. That honeyed tip, that sense of, yeah, that pleasantness of self-righteousness keeps, keeps feeding one on. But then when you feel into it, 
the root is poisonous, is, is ick. It doesn't feel good. It physically doesn't feel good. It mentally doesn't feel good. For your body, it's, it doesn't feel good. For your health, it's, so it's honey tip and poisonous root. So get to see the poisonous root. Don't get stuck in the honey tip. Again, these are different ways of seeing, being, with phenomena. And again, this, this ill will, this anger can show up for something that happened so long ago or, or hasn't even happened yet. Anyone angry about something that hasn't even happened yet? Like, right? The mind, yeah, makes up these stories. It's wild, interesting. And, and a beautiful story that I love is um, when the Buddha was sitting under the Bodhi tree. The story goes, the, the uh, night of his enlightenment, Mara, which I left a, a post-it note earlier. So Mara is, is the personification of these um, hindrances or challenges or, or Nivarana on the path. So Mara, this person, personification of challenges, didn't want the Buddha to get awakened. So, so Mara thro- brings a whole army, throws a, brings a whole army to fight uh, the Buddha, and the army they sh- shoot arrows. And as he's sitting under the Bodhi tree, what a beautiful image! That the arrows they turn into flower petals, and they fall down. And that is through that is because of his loving kindness, his metta. So that is a teaching right there. Even though it's beautiful and visually, can we be that? This. As Mara throws slings and arrows of hatred and anger, and we're like Rrr, boiling water, can we bring metta? Can we bring kindness? Can we bring kindness to ourselves? Oh, sweetheart, you're having a really hard time with this thing that never happened or happened 20 years ago and you've forgotten and you just remembered now. This is hard. This is hard. May you be well. May you be happy. May you be well, whoever, wherever you are in the world, this other person, the ways we've been entangled together. May you be well. May you be happy. So bring, transform the arrows into flower petals with metta towards yourself, towards others, a shield of metta, a shield of metta, force field. And appreciating the common humanity. And another way to also work with this is, again, if irritation and anger arises towards someone else, if a, um, uh, earlier I talked about Vipassana romance, now the other side, now I'm blanking, it's a, um, yeah, vendetta, thank you. If Vipassana vendetta, if that arises about someone, wait, they cut in front of me in the lunch line. Loving kindness, may you be well, may you be happy, may you be well, may you be happy. Um, and also another way to work with it is through contemplating the person's good qualities. So people you know, and, and it's so interesting, um, sometimes our mind doesn't want to go there. They have no good qualities. Well, well they actually, they really do. Um, okay, start with something that's simple. Okay, they're on time. Right? You can start somewhere. And then when you start with one quality, one wholesome quality, then the heart opens. Then more and more wholesome qualities show up. And similarly, if, if a Vipassana vendetta arises here, they're here. They're on this path. Well, just like me. They love this practice. Just like me. We're suffering together. Just just like everyone else. So bring this common humanity, common humanity, metta for you, metta for them. I'm going to move to sloth and torpor, the third one. Yes, we've made it to the third one, which is actually a, a double. It's, it's not just, it's sloth and torpor, right? So you get two for the price of one here in, in the Nivarana. So it's tinamitta, tinamitta. In, in Pali. And it's likened to water go- overgrown with algae. So, so bring that to mind. So there are different there are nuances of how they can be separated. Slo- um, uh, tina, sloth, could be thought of as the um, uh, 
sluggishness of the mind, midda as the body, that's one interpretation. There are also another Abhidhamma interpretation that tinna is the unwieldiness and and the um uh, the consciousness, you know, the awareness kind of being a little sluggish, and then the mental factors that, that support, like the, uh, that support consciousness, that's midda. So there's tiny, there are little differences, and I'll point out how you can work with potential, these potential um, nuances in a moment. So, so in general, well, I'm not going to describe what it is. You know what this is, right? Yeah, okay, so I don't need to describe it, but I'm going to share a few ways, in addition to the wonderful ways that have already been, been shared in the hall. And that is to become curious about the sleepiness, to become really curious about it. What does it feel like in the mind to be sleepy, to be kind of blah, or be bored, or and lack of energy, or sleepy, how, however way it might show up for you. Be very curious. How does it show up in the mind? How does it show up in the body? You might notice that in the body it might actually show up very sweetly. It might feel like molasses when you're tired and sleepy. Like, wow, this is pleasant. Or maybe it's unpleasant. I don't know. I'm not in your laboratory. You're in your laboratory. You figure out what's, study what's going on. And then become very curious about sleepiness. So I love this practice where you can become so curious about this foggy mind that you study it, you're with it, you're with it, and maybe even hypnagogic states arise, hypnagogic states of, you know, things don't make sense anymore. It's like this, the, the time right before falling asleep, right? You're familiar with that, like images and like, wow, this makes no sense. Where are we? Uh, you become aware of that. It's so interesting. Awareness can be present even in the hypnagogic state. And then you can fall asleep for a few seconds or even for a minute or two. And the moment you wake up, you will be aware, completely present. And when you wake up, because you haven't been resisting it, you know, that resisting is so painful. You're sleepy, like, oh, you're right. And you're exhausted. You're, you're, it's, it's painful. Whereas here, when you actually fall asleep, that few seconds of sleep is so restful, refreshing. But you're training your mind to be curious about these alternate alternate or, or various states of consciousness. You become aware of them. It's, it's very interesting. And for example, I've done this practice for a long time. And as I mentioned already in the hall, I love doing lying down practice because of my health condition. And the mind has become so sensitive that, that uh, or trained in this way, that when the, the, even before the hypnagogic state arises, there's just like pre-pre-pre-dull state, pre-pre-sleepy state, I recognize, I'm like, okay, all right, sweetheart, time to open your eyes, time to breathe in a little more deeply, maybe time to sit up or stand up. Like you start to know it earlier. You start to recognize it. You, be, you befriend your mind instead of thinking of it as a foe. You learn its ways. Get to know this instrument. It's also said that vitaka, connecting with the object, really connecting, uh, connecting with your object, if it's your breath, sensations in the body, um, really connecting, really trying to grok it clearly, that can bring up energy. You want to bring, so I'm going to offer different ways to work with it. One is the curiosity, study that, take a session or two, do that. Take another session to, to bring up energy. How can I bring up energy? Of course, standing up, opening your eyes, raising your arms are ways to bring up energy, physical energy. You can also bring energy by breathing few deeper breaths bring more energy or or sitting a little if you have what was the shrimp back you were saying last night if you have shrimp back uh, straighten up a little bit Isabel has now brought this lovely terminology to the hall you can have a straight back not a banana back not a shrimp back but but a straight back and that alone sometimes can bring more energy into the mind just that slight adjustment brings more energy into into the chitta. 
And there's a whole long list of things, uh, things from the Anguttara Nikaya, the antidotes. You can change your meditation subject. You can um, reflect or recite passages from the teachings. You can pull your ears. That's an interesting one. Um, massage the body. Get up. Sprinkle eyes with water. Look up at the sky. Do walking meditation. I think the last one is take a nap, if nothing works. <laughs> and that is okay if you've tried everything and you're just tired. You're coming from a year of exhaustion. You're just tired. Maybe you need a nap. And that's okay. Take a nap. Don't feel bad about it. This is what the body is telling you. Moving on to restlessness and and remorse. Again, this is a twofer. Uh, it's udacha kukucha. Udacha kukucha. Isn't that kind of fun? Udacha kukucha. Udacha kukucha. So udacha is restlessness, is is restlessness is actually um, is um, directed towards the future. Restlessness towards the future is kind of a sense of lack of control. Like, what would I do? Like, ah, right? Butterflies. You know what restlessness is. Yes, I don't have to describe. And now remorse, which is similar, is the same energy. It's the same energy, but it's... it's um, also often translated as worry, but it's past-oriented. It's remorse. It's like kind of this, this anguish having to do with the past. So this is one way this teaching is related. So uh, restlessness, future-oriented, worry or remorse is past-oriented, which also could be present-oriented too, but you can notice in your mind. It can bring more nuances to this experience. So one, one, oh yes, the, the simile is a, a bowl of water stirred by wind, stirred by wind. So the way, um, one way to work with this restless energy, which again can show up in the body in so many ways, butterflies and and the anxiety can show up in the chest and the arms and the, it can be up here a lot very heady not not settled in the body so so here's the invitation if that happens for you if that comes up for you that's one of your tendencies so consider this restless energy that could be here or giving rise to a lot of thoughts consider this restless energy like the restless energy, that the energy that a wild horse has, has a lot of energy, wants to run around, right? Now, if you take the wild horse and put it in a small pen, what happens? It goes crazy. It looks like it wants to kick the door of the barn open, like, ah! So... The same way with your energy of restlessness, don't try to squeeze it and focus on it. Like, okay, we're going to like, ah, because it becomes, it becomes really tight. Instead, recognize that it's here. Breathe around it. Breathe with it. The, the aperture we've been talking about with mindfulness of the body can be very spacious. Don't close the aperture down on the restlessness. Let the awareness of the body, let awareness be very large. Give it a lot of space. And what happens is that this energy gets dissipated. The same way that a horse will run around on, on the pasture and then it kind of tires out. It rests. Or the same way, if you think of it as another metaphor, if you think of molecules of a gas, think of nitrogen. You have, let's say, a thousand molecules in a small space, like they're jumping everywhere. If you open the space, give it a whole room for the same amount of nitrogen gas, like, oh yeah, molecule here, molecule there, it'll be dispersed, it won't be smelled at all, right? So that's the kind of thing you want to do with, it's still there. It's still there. Ah, it can still be here. But then there's so many other things to attend to. Do you see that? Does that make sense? 
If it doesn't, shake your head. Maybe I'll use another metaphor. I'm not seeing any shakings. Okay. So give it space. All right. Now we're coming to the last, but not the least. We're coming to doubt. Wikikicha. Wikikicha. So Wikikicha, again, similar to the other ones, the mind that is is desiring or cranky, um, is a doubtful mind. It doubts everything. It doubts yourself. I can't do this. This isn't. I'm a bad meditator. I can't do this. Or this practice is not for me. Or maybe I'm too old. I'm too young. This is not the right the right time of the year. Time the right time of my life. I don't know if this is the right practice for me. Um, I don't know if the Buddha really knew what he was talking about. I don't know if these teachers know what they're talking about. I am as like you know equal opportunity is just like doubt, 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 and and doubt. What is hard about doubt is that it masquerades as discernment. It masquerades as yeah, it's right. This is not the right practice for me. I'm not. I don't know what I'm doing. But it's just doubt. So get to see doubt. Get to see doubt. It's just doubt. Call it, it's just doubt. Another way to discern between doubt and discernment and wise discernment is notice the energy. Doubt has kind of like, it's kind of like, kind of like whiny energy. Whereas discernment is, feels different in the body. It feels different. See for yourself. Don't take my word for it. See for yourself. There's a rightness. There's a uprightness. That, that doubt doesn't have... Your, your version might sound a little different, but it's essentially the energy is, is similar. Yeah. It's just doubt. And doubt, of course, visited. visited. It visits all of us. You're human. You'll get visited by doubt. Welcome to being human. And it visited the Buddha too. And in fact, it is said that it was the last of the Nivarana, that the last visitation by Mara, that came and said, well, who do you think you are, Buddha? Who do you think you are, that you think you can awaken? And that's when it is said that, again, he's, this Buddha doesn't have that, has a different mudra, but you have seen many Buddhas touching the earth. It has already been brought in the first day. Touching the earth as earth be my witness. I belong here. I, I'm here as earth be my witness. I, I can wake up. Taking refuge. Trusting. Trusting. So the opposite of the antidote to doubt is trust. Touch the earth just like the Buddha did, as earth be my witness, as earth be my witness, I belong here, waking up is my natural birthright. Trust. And the last thing I will say is celebrate also, let the mind become bright when the nivarana have the veils have opened up. There are no veils, so you can go through them. For example, you're sitting or walking. Sensual desire? Nope. No. Yay. <laughs> Ill will? No. Yay. Really, do that. That yay celebration of wow, the the release, the joy of them not being there. Ah. Is there sleepiness? No, mind is bright. Yay! The fourth one? Remember what that was? Restlessness. Yes, restlessness. I'm pretty calm right now. Yay! Doubt? No, I have a sense of trust. This is good. Yay! So brighten the mind. As Bhikkhu Analyu says, to come to know this luminous nature of mind is an important requirement for the development of mind. Or rather, a a mind that is temporarily unaffected by any hindrances or mental defilements, this is his translation, is luminous. To come to know this this luminous nature of mind is an important requirement for the development of mind. So get to know your luminous mind.
let's just sit for a moment and let the words settle. The end of the world can never be reached by walking. However, without having reached the world's end, there is no release from suffering. I declare, I declare that it is in this long fathom body, with its perceptions and thoughts, that there is the world, the origin of the world, the cessation of the world, and the path leading to the cessation of the world. Thank you for your kind attention. I hope the reflections were helpful. Whatever was helpful, you can let it percolate. Whatever wasn't, you can let it go. And we're about uh, 10 minutes away from supper. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.